0: Uh, Well, uh, this is our uh, last Advent sermon, our last Advent service. Uh, We've been looking the last three weeks uh, at how Christ has come to make all things new. Uh, We started off by looking at how he changes our past. He makes your past new. He erases your past. All the sin, all the shame, it's gone. It's gone. Uh, The next week we looked at the future, how he changes our future Uh, How he takes us from being destined towards destruction and darkness and separation from God, and he gives us a new future. And then last week we looked at how that then, if our past and our future is truly changed, then how does he make our present then? How do we live today in newness of life? Uh, So we've looked at how his promises are are sure, his promises are good, and today uh, we're going to dig a little bit deeper and kind of ask the question, why has he done this? Uh, because it's, it's not just to bless us. Uh, and it, sometimes it kind of seems that way. Sometimes it kind of seems like we're sort of the center of the gospel story. That all of this was for us to change our past, to change our future. Uh, and it seems very us-centered. Uh, and there's truth in, in the reality that He's done this out of his love for us. He's done this out of his generosity. Uh, but we're not actually the center of the story. And I know we want to be the center of the story because that's just how we are, but we're not the center of God's story. There is a deeper reason for why He has done all this. Now we're part of it, and we 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 get a lot from it. We get huge blessing from it, obviously, but we're not the center of the story. God has actually done all of this. He's created this plan, this storyline, for His own pleasure, for His own satisfaction for his own glory, to make his beauty known, to make his love known, and so that his beauty and his love would be enjoyed by others and declared by others and declared to others. Now, you might think when you first hear something like that, you go, that sounds a little self-centered. And reality is, church, is it is. It is self-centered. But when it's God who's being self-centered, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. When you and I are self-centered, that's not a good thing because we're sinful, we're we're prideful. But God is love. What else would you want God to be centered upon? You want him to be centered upon you? I I, I know the answer is yes, but, but it's actually no. You want God to be centered on himself because he's glorious, because he's pure, because he's peace, because he's love. We want God to be centered on himself. So, so think of this maybe as an example, because there are some times where it's maybe good for us as humans to be, you know, I'll, I'll say self focused maybe. Think if you're a doctor, you, you found the cure for cancer. Wouldn't you want your name to get out there and become famous, right? You want to become a little self centered in the sense of not for your own glory, but for the glory of having this cure be known. So it'd be good for a human to kind of become self-centered, self-focused, to want to become famous and glorified if they actually had something to offer that would be worth the while of others. So that that's an example of, of a time when it's actually good for a person to want to become famous and have their glory be made known. And this is God. It is good for God to be glorified. It is good for God to be made famous. It is good for God to want his name be declared. He's got something much greater than the cure for cancer. He has the cure for death itself. He has the cure for sin. He has the cure for evil. He has the cure for shame and condemnation. Why would we not want him to be centered upon himself? And that's what we're gonna be looking at today. Why did God do all of this? It was to glorify himself. And that's good news for us. So I want to pray, and we're going to start in uh, Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be in uh, Ephesians 1 a little bit. Uh, and then we're going to close up in Revelation where we started this uh, three weeks ago. Father, it's hard for us to kind of wrap our, our heads around um, self-centeredness being a good thing. Um, because we, just, we know what that does in our own lives. We know the destruction that it brings when we're self-centered. We know the destruction that comes when others are self-centered. It just, it, things don't end well. But you are different. You are not like us. You are otherly. You're holy. You're totally pure, totally good. And you are Love. And so it is good for you to desire your own glory. It's good for us to desire your glory. So help us even to see this morning as we uh, get in this final week before Christmas, these last final weeks before our, our year ends, we want to go into this last little stretch with the big picture of why have you done all of this. As we go into gathering with friends and family, it is so easy for all the different things to sort of swallow up your glory, to swallow up the attention that you deserve, the real reason for why we even celebrate this every year. So help us, Holy Spirit, would your word go into our ears, into our minds, into our hearts, and work in us and just uh, enliven an awe and a wonder for your glory, that we would walk out here changed, even just a little bit changed, and different than when we walked in with a bigger, more clear perspective of who you are and what you've done for us. So we thank you. We ask that you lead us and guide us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. We're going to be going through 11, but um, I'm just going to read through a few verses to start off here. And So 5 ends and then begins uh, verse 6 saying, Christ Jesus... Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But what he did instead is he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." God's pleasure and his desire for his love and his greatness to be put on display and known led him actually to create a special way for that to happen. God had this desire. It was his pleasure, his desire to have his greatness and goodness and love be known. He wanted to do this, and that's a good thing. And so this led him to actually create a particular story, a reality a special way for this to happen. He has this desire, how am I gonna do this? I have an idea, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna create people, then I'm going to, I'm personally gonna become in their likeness. I'm gonna empty myself, go to death on a cross. It's, it's a weird plan, it's a weird idea. But this was his idea in order to put his beauty and glory and love on display. See, so he didn't need to create people, didn't have to do any of this, but he, he wanted to. And, and for the purpose of giving the gift of eternal joy and eternal peace to others so that he could share the richness and his goodness. I mean, really, he just, he wanted to share himself. He's, he's so good. He is so good. He wanted to share himself with others. So God, in a sense, wasn't satisfied with just sharing his goodness and his perfect love with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not that he was lonely, But the very fact that he himself is love, he is love, doesn't just have love, but he is love, it's in his very nature, so to speak, to want to share that. Real love overflows. It doesn't just kept for itself. And we are naturally bent towards wanting to share things that we enjoy. I mean, think about that. Think of a movie you saw recently that was good. Right, you go around, you start telling people, did you see that movie? Oh man, that was so good. Right, you go to a restaurant. Right? It's, it's great for you to enjoy it, but you wanna share that with others. So in a sense, you glorify that restaurant. C.S. Lewis has this amazing thing, this, this observation that I basically just kind of mentioned, but he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it actually completes the enjoyment I mean, think about that for a second. Uh, I, I enjoy certain things, but I'm most satisfied when I get to share that enjoyment with someone else. I mean, it's, 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 it's great to enjoy something, but when you have, when you share that with someone, there's this contentment, this satisfaction. He goes on and he says it's not out of a compliment that lovers keep on telling each other how beautiful they are. It's not just, it's not just for the sake of saying, hey, I think you look beautiful today. It's not just to compliment them. No, he says the delight is incomplete until it's expressed. Right? My delight in, in my wife is incomplete until I'm able to tell her, you look beautiful today. I love you. She knows, she, she knows I love her. I don't have to tell her that. But I my love for her just over. I just I have to say it. I have to say it. And when I can say it, then now it's like this this love, this enjoyment is complete. He says, it's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of a road and upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, but you have to keep silent because the other people in the car could care less. They're just on their phones. C.S. Lewis didn't say that. They didn't have cell phones back then, but, but you know, you, just, you look at this great view and everyone's just like, eh, whatever. You, That's so frustrating, he says. Or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. And he goes on, he he quotes the Westminster Confession. He says, the catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But he makes this great observation. He says, we shall then know that these two things, glorifying God and enjoying him, they're actually the same thing. Glorifying God and enjoying God is the same thing. Fully to enjoy something is to glorify something. So when God commands us to glorify him, what God is doing is he's inviting us to enjoy him. He wants us to enjoy him because if we enjoy him, we're going to glorify him. So glorifying something comes out of enjoying something. God himself desires to be glorified so that others could actually enjoy his love, his peace, his goodness. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky and where I think it actually gets a little interesting and, and really fun as we kind of... Take a deeper dive into this. We've looked at the last few weeks as to why God had to become a human, why he became a baby. We saw that it was primarily because the fact that it was, since it was humanity that sinned against God, it must be humanity to appease God. That's what we've been looking at the last three weeks specifically. Why did he become a human? Because it was humans that sinned. That's why God, the son, became flesh and blood. Became Jesus so that he could rightly pay for human sin, but that's not the only reason why he became human. That's what we've looked at the last three weeks, but there's more to it. See, God the Father gave the Son a task, a task to redeem sinful humans, a task. He gave his Son a task to come and redeem you. If your name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the earth, he saw your name there, and the Father says, I want you to go and save this person. You're gonna go on this task. And he did this for the purpose so that God the Father could share his love and glory with those people, those lost people. Now, because the son agreed to this, because he accomplished this painful task, God the Father then will reward his son by exalting the son above all things. And when that happens, every knee will bow. So we continue in Philippians chapter 2. In verse nine, it says, Therefore God, God the Father, has highly exalted him, highly exalted Jesus, and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now beyond that, even the result is that God, his Father, will also give him a gift. And this gift won't just simply be a gift and an honor to the son, but it's also simultaneously going to fulfill God's desire to share his love and beauty with others. So in his desire to share this glory and love with his creation, the only way for that to ultimately happen, to have that intimately be able to happen, is for God himself and that creation to become one. One. That's the most intimate way you can share love is by becoming one. And that's what God desired to do. He wanted to become one with his own creation. So God the Father wanted to give his son a bride, a bride to become one with. He desires to give his son as a gift and reward. He wants to give his son a pure, spotless bride that shines In all of her beauty. And the Son of God will look upon that bride and he will behold her beauty. And he will be pleased and satisfied with her beauty, this eternal gift from his Father. His Father's gonna give his son an eternal bride, a beautiful, spotless bride. That's what the Father wants to do for the Son. But this can't happen. See, because God is spirit. That's what we just saw in Philippians 2. He was in the form of God. God is spirit. Before the Son of God was Jesus, the Son of God was spirit. So this, this can't happen. He can't become one with his creation because God is spirit. And not to mention, he's also, he's God. God can't just create a partner for himself you know, there's some things that God can't do. He can't sin, he can't break promises, and he can't create another God. That's impossible. So he can't create something that is equal with him. So how can he become one with something he's not equal with? He can create something in the image of God, but it would still be less than God. So there's a problem. And this is where the emptying of Christ that we read about comes into play. Looking back at verse six, though he was in the form of God's spirit, But he didn't account account equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he's emptying himself so that he could become an equal, an equal. He didn't grasp for his deity, but he became equal. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So how did God empty himself? He didn't empty himself by by losing his deity at all, nothing like that. He maintained 100% of who he is as God. The creator of all things decided to become a servant. Despite his deity, despite his right, he chose to become a servant. So God didn't become less than what he already was. That's not what happened. When he empties himself, it doesn't mean he becomes less than anything. He actually, in one sense, he becomes more than what he already was, meaning that he became now human. Though he had it all, he chose not to act upon it. And the point is that by emptying himself, he was acting now as a man. He did what he did on this earth as a man. And he accomplished all that the Father sent him to do as a man. So we think, great, this is awesome, problem solved. he become a man and now... We we can become one with him, but that's not the case. That doesn't solve the problem because God himself, even if he is a human now, he can't become one with sinful flesh. So we still have this problem. So this is what we've been looking at the last three weeks. Firstly, he became a man so that he could pay for our sin, and now he would become one with us once our sins are paid for. So there's kind of a twofold thing here. Became a man to cleanse us of sin, but then he also became a man so that he could become one with us. Now, why all this work? Why does Christ come to make our past, present, and future brand new? It is to bless us, definitely, but it's more than that. See, church, Jesus truly is. We know this. We know that he is a gift to us. The solution for our sin, the one who stood in our place condemned church, we have to understand that we were also intended to be a gift to Jesus. You were purchased to be a gift to Jesus. You are gonna be delivered by your father to his son. You're a gift to Jesus. He purchased you to be a gift. And I'm not saying... You know, we don't, we're not sitting here going like, well, I'm a real catch, you know? God, I mean, look at this. You wanna give this to your son? I mean, this is, <laughs> this is good stuff right here, all right? That, that's not what we're saying here. That, that's not at all what we're saying. Like, this should just be something that just completely turns our minds upside down. What do you mean I'm a gift to Jesus? No, 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 no. he's a gift to me. It's, it's yes and yes. You were purchased you were rescued. Remember we talked last week about that hostage situation? You were rescued from that hostage situation, and now you are given to Jesus as a gift for all eternity. You're the wedding gift from the father to his son. This is, this is all part of the plan. I mean, we, we know we're not worthy of this. We're not even worthy to be re-gifted to some lesser God, much less gifted to Jesus himself. No, our, our sins have stained us. Our sins have made us worthless. They've made us dirty and unworthy. So why have we been chosen to be God's gift to Jesus? We're going to look at this in Ephesians chapter one. I'd like you to open there or it'll be up on the screen. When we look at Ephesians one, um, theologian uh, Charles Hodge says this about it. He says, the father did give the son a work to do. And the father did promise to the son a reward upon it's accomplishment. And so this transaction, this plan, therefore, was the nature of a covenant. Father and the son made a covenant with each other. An obligation was assumed by the son. The son says, yes, I am I'm giving myself to this task to accomplish the work that was assigned to him. And then an obligation was also assumed by the father to grant the son the stipulated award, reward if it was accomplished. Martin Lloyd-Jones points specifically to Ephesians chapter 1 that we're going to look at here and showing that the Trinity is at work in this covenant. The three blessed persons of the Trinity divided up the work. First we see in verse 3, the Father planned all of this. This was the Father's plan. Look at verse 3, Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He, God the Father, chose us chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Why did he choose us? So that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is why he chose you to make you holy and blameless. And this was all in love, in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, And going into verse 7, we see that the Son is the one who put this plan into operation. So in Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, in Him... In him we have obtained an inheritance, a future, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 13, we see that the Holy Spirit is the one who applies this. So this is a Trinitarian work, this plan. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and you believed in him, you were sealed then with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's almost kind of like the wedding ring in a sense. It's the sign of the seal of this oneness, this unity. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So God the Father, before time began, had chosen to redeem a people, people that he knew, however, would turn from their creator. Yet because of his Mercy and love, he created, again, before time began, a plan. A plan. A covenant between him and his image bearers. God forged a covenant. He made a covenant. That's why we call marriage a covenant. This is is the marriage covenant between us and God. A very specific plan to be very specifically united for a very specific purpose. But this covenant can't be fulfilled because God can't be unified and made one with sinful man, the sons of the first Adam. We have this disease and that's called sin. So there must be a new Adam who comes, someone who can do what the first Adam could never do and then atone for all the sins of the first Adam and all of his offspring. But who could this possibly be? The word says there's no one who's good, not even one. That's why last week we looked at that that little four-line statement that only God could actually be our redeemer because only he is perfect. But God should not be our redeemer because he's not the one who broke the law. Only man should be our redeemer because he is the one who broke the law. But man could not be our redeemer because no one's good, no, not one. In Revelation chapter five, we see this unfolding, this sadness, this grief when we recognize that there is no man who can do this. Revelation 5, verse 1, it says, this is John speaking. He says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on the earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You see, the father knew that no one would be able to, so before time began, he turned to the son and he initiates this, this covenant of redemption. He asked the son, would you be willing? And as a reward for his part, God the father, out of this deep love for his son, he promises his son a people, a bride, as a gift to him. However, as it were, the bride needs to be purchased She needs to be ransomed from her slavery, ransomed from her captor, which is sin and death. She needs to be cleansed and purified because her sins are many. And she's standing in line to receive the wrath of God's justice, punishment for her many sins. And so for the son to receive his bride, he must lower himself, empty himself, and become one of his own creation. And he must then stand in her place as a man himself, becoming her sin. And he has to be made to drink the cup of the wrath of the fury of his own father, becoming a ransom for her so that she can be freed from her slavery. The son of God the second person of the Trinity, God himself must become a man, a perfect man, and fulfill every part of the law in order to permanently appease the wrath and justice of his father. And if he does so, his reward is great, a perfect and spotless bride for all eternity. And the son, always, always, always wanting to glorify his father, and very much desiring to have a bride to share his glory and give his love and his eternal peace to, for the joy set before him. He agrees wholeheartedly to this painful plan, as painful as he knows that it will be. This will be the one act to secure for eternity the people that God the Father desired to be his people, to be the bride for his son, the people chosen to enjoy and display his glory for all eternity. And then God, his father, will exalt him. He's gonna put him above all things with his bride sitting at his right hand. And the son will be given the name above all other names, which is king of kings, And Lord of lords and church, we, the bride, will be sitting right next to him at his right hand for all eternity. In Revelation chapter 19, we see this picture. John says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. This is Jesus And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, that's us, that's us. We're going to be arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then in Revelation 21, this is where we started three weeks ago. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And also he said, write this down because these words are trustworthy and true. And he also said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Church family, you've got to believe this. You've got to believe this. You have been chosen and purchased for a purpose to be a gift to your Savior. You've been purchased to be a gift given to your Savior. You've been purchased to be made pure and spotless and holy and blameless so that you can be presented to God as a gift for all eternity, to sit with him at his right hand. We're, we, we've, we were enemies of God We were enemies. We we became completely worthless because of our sin, and Christ changed everything. He changed everything. We were captives, enslaved, and we we were good, obedient slaves to our sin, weren't we? We didn't disobey our sin. We didn't disobey our captor. We were good, obedient slaves. We did whatever our desires, whatever our sin wanted to do, We were enemies. And the son emptied himself, came to this earth as a baby, lived the life you couldn't live, fulfilled everything you couldn't fulfill, did not obey sin and death, died in your place so that you could be set free and made new and then be given to him and become one with him for all eternity. And this isn't your own doing. This is a gift of God. This is a gift of God. He has made your past new. He has made your present new and he makes your future new. Why all of this? Because he is love. Because he's love. That's why it says in Ephesians, in love, he did all of this. Because love, true love, finds its ultimate satisfaction when it is shared with others. God desires to be glorified so that his love can be enjoyed by you forever. Forever. He wants you to enjoy his goodness and his love forever. This is why he desires his own glory to be made known. This is why he wants to be glorified in and through your life. He wants you to go into this Christmas and beyond sharing the goodness of God with others. He wants you to glorify him so that others can also enjoy him forever. It's good that he wants to be glorified. It's good that he wants you to glorify him. God desires to be glorified so that his love can be enjoyed by all of us forever. This is why we see in John three sixteen it says that God so loved the world that he gave us his son. Jesus was born so that he could die. That was his whole purpose. That was his whole mission. That was the covenant that was put together. From his very youth, he knew that this was his plan, was to die so that we could be freed from death. I mean, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Christ becoming flesh, Jesus, uh, the Son of God, God himself becoming f- flesh, this is the most implausible event in human history. I mean, think, think about this. This is the craziest, most ridiculous story. God, eternal, powerful creator God, empties himself and lowers himself and is tortured by his own creation. This is a crazy, crazy plan. A crazy plan. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. It's just an inc- it's so implausible that an all-powerful God would do something like this. Lower himself and empty himself so that us lesser people could become one with him and enjoy him forever. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. This is why it says in the word that God, uh, he, he, he shames the wise through his own foolishness what we say is foolishness. He puts the strong to shame by displaying his own weakness, dying on a cross. It's just totally upside down with what we see. There's this great quote from a guy named Bruce Shelley. He says, Christianity is the only major religion whose central event is the humiliation of its own God. I mean, think about that. The central event of our faith is our God humiliating himself. Naked on a cross. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That is the central event of our faith. God lowering himself for our sake. It's incredible that an almighty and holy God would become a baby for the sake of sinners and enemies. Ultimately, this is just wonderfully beyond our comprehension. This does not make any sense. Church, whatever you think about Jesus, I just want you to know he's so much better than that. Right, whatever you think, if you think he's this great, he's greater than that. You think he's this great, he's greater than that. We can't comprehend how great Jesus is. And he died for you so that you can enjoy that greatness forever. He wants you to keep going deeper and deeper into knowing him for all eternity. We're never gonna get to the bottom of God's greatness. That's why it has to be eternity because we can't get to the end. Whatever we think of who God is and how good he is and how beautiful and wonderful he is, he's just so much better than that. And he's invited you to partake in that. He's invited you to become one with that, to enjoy that forever. And so he purchased you so that he can present you to his own son to enjoy that love forever. And this is all because of his great love by which he has loved us. I wanna close by continuing in Ephesians chapter two, just reading through the first 10 verses here. Ephesians one and two, just read them this week before you head into Christmas. Read them over and over again this week. So he continues. After we saw in Ephesians one, this, this kind of covenant of redemption, so to speak, it says in verse one, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. He was your captor. He was your captor. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... But God, God the Father, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were imprisoned enemies, he, God the Father, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he, God the Father, raised us up with him, with Jesus, God the Son, and seated us with him, with Jesus, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, So that in the coming ages, he, God the Father, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So he saved us by grace and seats us with Christ in order to display his goodness and the glory of his riches and grace. verse seven, in the coming ages, he would show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved Through faith. This is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You've been purchased for good works, to do good works that would glorify God. Good works which God the Father prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Church, you've been invited to enjoy Christ. You've been purchased, you've been set free so that you can enjoy Christ. As I mentioned last week, Jesus is not a concept to obey. He's not a list of rules to follow. He's not a religion to fulfill. He is a person to love. You're invited to love Jesus, to know his love, to be enamored with his love, to be amazed by his beauty. He he wants you to know him more deeply. Not just to obey out of obligation or to check boxes and be a rule follower. He's invited you to love him and know him and know his love and be filled with his love, filled with his peace. Experience oneness with him now. Don't just wait for heaven. Experience that oneness now, communion now. He purchased you for this reason And the Father has gifted you to the Son. You are a gift to Jesus. I know that just doesn't sound right. It sounds like blasphemous, but it's true. You are the gift given to the Son. Enjoy Him now. Get to know Him now. Dive deeper into that now. Don't wait. It's there, it's available for you now. He is a person to love. He is a person who loves you, a person who emptied himself for you because of his great love for you. Don't settle for anything less than truly knowing and getting to know the love of Jesus every single day. Every single day. Don't reduce him to anything else. He's so much better than that. Whatever we tend to reduce Jesus in our faith to, He's so much better than that. And we don't want to settle for anything less. So therefore, Paul says in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You have been saved to new life. You've been saved to be sent into this world. You've been saved to be renewed. You've been saved to enjoy the love of God. You've been saved to be his treasured possession You've been saved to be a gift now even to this world, to declare and glorify God your Father so that they might also know the love of Jesus, oneness with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we close our time together, And we think about and consider this, I don't know, it just seems like upside down truth. That you, Father, you chose us before the foundation of the earth and chose us to be this, this wedding gift to your son. Uh, it just, it doesn't make sense. But then we realize that this is, about you and your glory, you wanting to be glorified, you wanting to share love. Have others know your love to be filled with your grace and with peace. You're just, uh, you're an amazing God. And I know that I'm gonna spend the rest of this life and all of eternity trying to comprehend your goodness and your greatness, your beauty and your splendor. But God, I I don't want to wait until I'm on the other side of eternity. I want to dive more deeply now because I know the more I'm enamored with your love, the more I'm going to be sharing that with others because that's what love does. When when we're in love with something or in love with someone, we want to glorify it. We want to talk about it. We want to share it with others. And so I I want to just fall more and more and more in love with you, become more enamored with you, more amazed by you in this life so that I would just be driven to glorify you more and more in this life, to talk about you more and more in this life, to look for opportunities more and more in this life. And that maybe by your grace, God, you would save others even through The conversations I have with people, the example maybe that I I live, whatever it might be, you would just use me as your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. I want to walk in those good works. So build me, root me more deeply, open my eyes wider that I might see your glory and beauty more. I've only just begun getting to know your goodness. 25 years into my salvation, that's nothing. That's nothing. I wanna keep going and I wanna go deeper and deeper and I wanna know you more and more. I wanna be more and more amazed by you. Change my mind, change my heart, change my words, my actions, my desires that I would put you on display in everything that I do. Help us, Lord, help us to be that kind of a church. Help us to be that kind of a bride, a bride that is just enamored by our bridegroom, who's just in love with our bridegroom. We wanna be that church. Help us, God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are part of this change and this work in us. We love you. Thank you, Lord. I lift up all these petitions, all these desires to you in the beautiful name, the name above all names, the name of the King of kings, the name of the Lord of lords, the name Jesus Christ. Amen.